this is Zachary Watson with Space Foundation, and you're listening to the Space for You podcast. Space for You is designed to tell the stories of the people who make today's space exploration and global space ecosystem possible. Today, we are joined by Dr. Katherine Thornton, a former NASA astronaut and a current professor emeritus at the University of Virginia in the School of Engineering and Applied Science, Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Selected by NASA in May 1984, Catherine is a veteran of four space flights in the era of the space shuttle. Those four flights, including her stints as a spacewalker repairing in-orbit satellites, including the Hubble Space Telescope, gave her nearly 1,000 hours of space travel. Since leaving NASA, Dr. Thornton has served on multiple review committees and task groups, including several years on the National Research Council Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including NASA Space Flight Medals, the Explorer Club Lowell Thomas Award, the University of Virginia Distinguished Alumna Award, the Freedom Foundation Freedom Spirit Award, and the National Intelligence Medal of Achievement. But any of her affiliations we at Space Foundation are most proud is Dr. Thornton's role on our board of directors since 2010 and is elected chairwoman since 2020. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Thornton. It is wonderful to have you on the podcast. Growing up, were you always drawn to STEM? And how was that fostered for females in the public school system in Montgomery, Alabama? Well, you know, you have, it was a long, long time ago when I was in the public school system in Montgomery, Alabama. And it's, you know, a different place than, than where we all are now. And in fact, girls were not encouraged to do STEM. They, were, they could be teachers or nurses. Girls went to college to get a husband. To graduate without one was considered a failure, practically. So it, I was, I don't know, I, I just didn't get the message, I suppose. You know, I always liked math and science. I liked taking things apart. I grew up with brothers. I have sisters as well, but I grew up with brothers. So, you know, I, you know, anything they could do, I could do, which was kind of hard on their egos sometimes. But, you know, it was not encouraged. I was kind of a slip through. Wow. You know, I, I did sort of slip through the filter of girls aren't supposed to do this. And, you know, I was the only girl in my physics class in high school and, and most of my physics classes in college. But I had a, a teacher in high school. He taught chemistry the year I took it, and then he moved to physics the year I took physics. So I had him for two years. And he was a big influence on my life without actually, I think, trying to or intending to. It just he expected the same from me as from the guys, even though I was the only girl in the class. He probably fostered my interest and persistence in science more than anybody. That's great. Was space in the public school curriculum at that time? Were you introduced to space at all? No, absolutely not. You know, back in those days, there were only a few astronauts. Mm-hmm. And they were all guys, and they were all test pilots, and that was not going to include me. So it was it's not anything I ever considered back then. I just, I liked science, I liked math, so I sort of stuck with it through college. Um, after four years of college with a degree in physics, I figured I didn't know enough to go out into the world. So I got a master's degree and then a PhD in physics when they finally made me go out into the world. <laughs> and uh, I really lucked into it. I was working for the U.S. Army as a physicist. When I saw an announcement that NASA was selecting the next group of astronauts, and that was the uh, 10th group of astronauts selected, and I thought, you know, what the heck, all they can do is say no. Sally had flown just the, I, about the time I was applying was when Sally Ride was flying, and I also, they also published the um, 
qualifications required to apply. And it was just basically normal, healthy people with advanced degrees in science, math, or engineering. And I thought, you know, all they can do is say no. And then until they do, the dream is alive. And when they say no, you go find another fantasy to live and work towards. So it was, you know, for people who work their whole life and plan their whole life to become astronauts, it's it's kind of hurtful to to them when I say that, man, I just stumbled into it. It's the best thing I ever stumbled into. That is fantastic. We talk about being a pioneer in your industry, Dr. Thornton. That's incredible. So to date, women make up just over 10% of human space travelers. And as of September 2021, 67 women have flown in space. Two women were recently aboard SpaceX's first ever all-civilian space mission, Inspiration4. How do you think that we improve gender equality and close that gender gap in space exploration? Well, you have to think, over the years, there weren't very many women in the astronaut program. In fact, none until 1978. So for the first, uh, what is that, almost 20 years, there were none. And after that time, many of the astronauts were military and test pilots. And so there was a whole nother filter on that group of people that kept the number of women down until, gosh, I guess maybe in the eight, late 80s and early 90s, we started getting a few women through the military pipeline. So, you know, if you discount those those years where it was really some serious filters for women to get into the program, I think it's opened up quite a bit. If you look at the last few selections, I think there's been much more equity in men and women selected as an astronaut. So we're making progress. It may take decades or generations, but, you know, if you don't give up, you eventually get there. That's great advice. With the Artemis missions, NASA has said it wants to land the first woman and the first person of color on the surface of the moon in 2024. This program is named after Greek goddess Artemis, the twin sister of Apollo. How do you think this impacts deep space travel to Mars? That's an interesting question and and one that I've had uh, an opinion on for some time that if we set up a permanent presence on the moon, I think that that will delay us going anywhere else for a generation or two. Back in the 1980s when we were designing the space station, the tagline was, you know, permanent presence in low Earth orbit. And sure enough, we got that. So from the year 2000, for more than 20 years now, we've had a permanent presence in low Earth orbit, but we haven't done anything else. We've been stuck in low Earth orbit. I think if we intend to plant a permanent base on the moon, that it will delay us doing anything else. So I know it's not popular, but but my opinion was if we need to go to the moon to learn to go to Mars, then we ought to go to the moon and do it. We ought to have objectives. We ought to have a start date and a stop date and then pick up and move on. Because I think the likelihood of us being able to support a permanent presence in low Earth orbit, a permanent presence on the moon, and then continue to explore. I mean, eventually we'll get there, but I think it will delay it a ways and delay it outside of my lifetime, and I'd like to see it. Yes, we all would. That'd be great. Is there a particular mission or payload that you worked on that you are most proud of having been part? You know, all the missions, particularly for the mission specialist, all the missions are different, which is awesome. You get to do all kinds of things. I've deployed satellites. I've worked on satellites. I've done science experiments. I think the one that probably has the most consequence was the first mission to service Hubble. It was exciting. It was tense. It was, you know, everything you could want in a, in a space mission, lots of spacewalks. It was great. And, you know, when we finished that mission, 
we didn't come back and celebrate when we got to Earth, even though everything we had done, we could do, had been done properly. Everything worked. It was sending data to the ground. All the things that we trained for to go wrong didn't go wrong. But until the pictures came back, until the telescope was working at 100% capacity or better, the mission wasn't successful. Unless everybody was successful, it wasn't successful for anybody. So we really didn't relax and let our hair down and celebrate big time until you know a month later when we started seeing pictures coming back from Hubble. It was an awesome time. It was exciting. And one thing that, that always brings me back to that is that when I flew that mission, my oldest daughter was 11 years old. She got her PhD using Hubble data. Oh, so that's fantastic. Somewhat connected to that telescope. That's incredible. What did training look like for that? Can you share a little bit about how do you train? What do they put you through? Training for that mission and every other mission, you, you do as much as you possibly can on the ground. It's like we learned in aviation years ago. You fly like you train. And so we had uh, simulators in a water tank, a full-size telescope, or parts of it anyway, in the water tank where we could do all the EVA procedures. We had the regular shuttle simulators. Um, We flew KC-135 where we could do some zero-G in an aircraft, a little bit doing that. We had sort of the beginnings of virtual reality, which I think is used much more extensively now, but I think that was the first time that, that we'd even looked at it. We used an air-bearing floor, so it was kind of like being the hockey puck in an air, air hockey game. And, and all of those simulators lie to you in one way or another. They're not exact. But if you take a, a lot of different ways of looking at it and try to integrate those in your mind as to what it's really going to be like, those are very, very helpful. But we trained for a gazillion things to go wrong, and fortunately they didn't. So we spent as much, much more time training for things we didn't do as things that we actually did do. We all trained the EVA crew to do any of the tasks so that if a pair of us were out in the cargo bay and we couldn't do what we did, what was on the flight plan for us to do for whatever reason, the ground needed to look at it or, or whatever, we could move on to something else. We could have been replanned in real time to do that. So we had a lot of cross-training going on. It was interesting at the end of every day when the crew came in, we would do a little bit of, you know, take a deep breath and relax. You know, today went well. We got everything done today. And then after about half an hour, maybe, it was, okay, let's get on to tomorrow. Let's move on to what we're doing tomorrow. Start planning for it, getting the equipment ready for that tomorrow. So it was a a pretty intense five days of spacewalking or or even longer with that, considering the the rendezvous before and then the deploy afterwards. So it was a pretty intense mission. But it was just, it was fun and it was exciting. And it was, I guess it was, I remember it so fondly because everything went right. I mean, things worked. We, we had a few glitches that we worked around, but, but, you know, had it been a failure, had we messed up, I mean, if we couldn't have gotten the new solar rays on, we would have killed that telescope. Right. And it was bad as it was before we visited it, they were still getting data. It was being used extensively for planetary research. You know, so no matter how bad things are, you can always make them worse. <laughs> and we were just so, so happy we didn't do that yes. and that things worked out. What do you think is the biggest misconception around being an astronaut? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think that, that astronauts are not normal people. I find it hilarious that we have the first all-civilian crew, and it's just proof that regular people can go to space. And I'm thinking, well, who do you think's been doing it? So I, I just I find that hilarious. Did you ever feel that you were in danger or at risk um, on your missions? Generally, I didn't worry about getting hurt. 
more, most of you worry about messing up. You know, you don't want the whole world's watching. You don't want to right. mess up. But there was one episode on my first flight, and it's kind of interesting given what's been reported lately about the Inspiration Four crew and the toilet alarm because we had a toilet alarm. That's one of the two flights of my four that I really felt kind of bad on the first day. And so we had, it was a classified mission, so I can't tell you what we did, but we did it that day. And it was a long day. And at the end, I was sort of, you know, rolled up in a ball in my sleeping bag, feeling like I'd have to get better to die. And then all of a sudden, this alarm goes off and went, wah, 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 wah. And I thought, I was kidding. I was kidding. Um, (laughs) But it turns out in in the toilet, the uh, container is vented to space. So stuff is freeze dried and reduces odor and bacteria growth. And there's a handle you pulled up and that closed the linkage to space. And then you push it forward and that opened the gate valve and that was your toilet. So it turns out that when the first person used it in that capacity for solid waste, he pulled up the handle and it didn't close the link to space because it was a little linkage had broken. And so we pushed it forward and we had the equivalent of a half inch hole in our cabin. So air is rushing out, pressure is dropping, and master alarm goes off, wah, wah, wah. But, you know, the, the cause and effect was pretty clear. You know, he, he throws his handle, cool air is washing, rushing past his rear end, and the alarm goes off. So he just closed the handle, and it was all was okay. You know, we weren't really in any danger. But for that, you know, a tenth of a second when I'm thinking I'd have to get better to die, and then the master alarm goes off. <laughs> oh. And the but toilet's going to take you out. <laughs> yeah. We managed it just by putting vice grips on a, a shaft, and we used that to rotate the shaft. But there was a flight rule in place that says if the toilet's broken, you're coming home the next day because you're in a closed environment, and it can right. be you know, serious health hazard Sure. if you get rid of waste in an environment that you're living in and breathing in. And I don't know what – it would be interesting to know what the flight rules are relative to the Inspiration4 crew mm-hmm. and what happened in – and what their response was, we actually had to convince the ground that we're fine. Really, we can make this work. It's just a little vice grip here. We can handle this. And they let us stay up. But there's a rule that said you had to come home. Can you share your thoughts around the importance of mentorship? Given as fortunate as I have been in my career for lots of reasons, most of them which had nothing to do with me. It had to be at the right place at the right time. You know, I tried to, to look for people that could just, just use a little push. I know in teaching, that was, you know, I became a better teacher when I realized that, that you can have a huge impact with very, almost no effort, you know, just giving somebody confidence, telling them you believe in them, push them along. And so those are the kids that I taught that really sort of took a piece of my heart were the ones that were just working their buns off and getting by while they saw their friends cruising and getting all A's and them thinking about giving up on themselves. You know, those are the ones I remember. What is one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out in their space career? I guess there, there are lots of ways to be involved in the space program. Anybody can. There's so many different dimensions that, that require humans and people with a passion that anybody can be a part of it. I think most career paths are not linear. Mine was kind of a random walk. I never knew what I was going to do next. I don't know if that was by design or just lack of imagination. It's hard to say, but I think you have to be open to changing your plans when new opportunities show up. And if, you know, there's a roadblock in your way, you find a way to go around it with other other plans. That's true. What is a lesson that you've learned over the course of your career that you think is important? 
probably the most important thing is to stay flexible sure. in, in your expectations and where you think you were going. Yeah, I don't think you can predict all the opportunities that are going to show up. And if you're pointed in a singular linear direction, you might miss some really cool things. I love that. If you could go back and give your 18-year-old self a piece of advice, what would that be? Hmm. Wow, I don't know. I mean, my 18-year-old person would have had no idea that I could have had the opportunities I've had. I mean, they're just, it's impossible. At 18, this kid in Alabama, that was, you know, shortly after guys landed on the moon. And when President Kennedy said we're going to send a man to the moon, he wasn't using that in the generic sense. So those opportunities weren't there. And even, you know, for the guys around me, you know, who would have thought you could get to be an astronaut by (laughs) by stumbling in the right places? It's incredible. I guess that goes back to being flexible in your expectations. I don't even know what I thought I was going to do back then. I don't think I've ever figured out what I'm going to do next or what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm still working on that a little bit. We'll We'll see. We'll see. Exactly. Just close this out with a question weighing heavily on everyone's minds. Star Wars or Star Trek? You're not going to believe this, but I've watched both of them, but I I have never gotten into sci-fi. I'm more into the real science than sci-fi. Yeah, I know that's kind of weird for an astronaut. Not at all. What's something about you that most people familiar with your work wouldn't know? Oh, I continue to look for my next adventure. So um, I took up backpacking at at my advanced age, and uh, I enjoy it. I go out and... I hiked the Appalachian Trail in 2019, and I try to go out for a week or two a year just by myself. I'm happy to just be out there by myself and walk till I get tired and put my, put my tent down in the middle of nowhere by myself. Uh, I enjoy that. And that's, I would never have thought I would do that. I used to say, you know, that's for turtles carrying your house on your back. I'm not ever doing <laughs> that. But, you know, I, I turn, I've come to like it. Just never stop exploring. That's right. Got to find another adventure. Dr. Thornton, thanks again for joining us. And that concludes this episode of Space Foundation Space for You podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on Podbean, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, our website, spacefoundation.org, where you can also learn about the various ways you can support Space Foundation. On all of these outlets and more, it's Space Foundation's mission to be a gateway to information, education, and collaboration for space exploration and space-inspired industries that drive the global space ecosystem. As always at Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thanks for listening.